Welcome, welcome to another episode of Doable Discipleship. That's right, this is a Saddleback Church podcast designed to help you deepen your faith, or as we love to call it, and you love to call it, shout it with me, the show that helps you grow. That's right, my name is Jason Whelan, I'm one of the co-hosts here on this show, and we are back in this series on is on This Is Our Story, Genesis. Last week, we got this beautiful grand view of Genesis 1 it, and, um, to, you know, see God making the universe and the stars and the sun and the earth and the animals and everything. This week, we're diving into Genesis chapter 2, a creation story, but an intimately personal creation story. So we're going to zoom in and we're going to get deep on everything that's going on in Genesis 2 what it says about God, what it says about man, what it says about the world. And um, yeah, I really hope that you've been enjoying this study so far. And by the way, as we've said, uh, every time we've been, been doing this series, this is a study. So if you've been sitting on your hands and you haven't talked to your small group about doing this study, I don't know what you're waiting for. Go on to saddleback.com watch with your group. Choose This Is Our Story Genesis as your next group study. It's free. I, I don't know if you've thought that it's cost anything. It doesn't. It's free. Go on there and do it. It's the only place that you can find the beautiful study guide that, that goes along with this study. And uh, you'll actually get to see Brandon and Brandon's faces if you're watching the videos for it too. So guys, listen here, but also do it with your group. It's that easy. Can't I, I can't pitch it any harder. So uh, guys, let us go back into Eden and uh, dive into Genesis 2 now. Could you imagine the God who spun the universe into existence, who said, let there be light, and suddenly there was light? Can you imagine this God then rising from his heavenly throne coming down, putting his knees in the dirt, and then slowly forming a person out of the mud. A God so powerful, so above, choosing to come near, to breathe his breath into us. See, in Genesis 1, we saw God performing on the, the stage of the universe. Big lights, quite the production. But in Genesis 2, we get to go behind the curtain, meet him up close and personal. Let's be amazed at who he is and what this chapter teaches us about who we are. Let's gear up for chapter 2 of Genesis. This is our story. I hope you've gotten a chance already to dig into Genesis chapter 2. If not, before you continue on, pause this video, read it together as a group. Now let's dive into Genesis chapter 2 and hear what God wants to say to us as we immerse ourselves in His story. 
So with all that in mind, let's dive into our first question. What does this story tell us about God? Let's begin with the contrast. Imagine again how God is portrayed in Genesis 1. What does that picture of God emphasize? Well, you have a cosmic king almost sitting on a throne above all things, speaking reality into existence. God speaks and it happens. He commissions the sun and moon as governors with dominion over the day and night. He doesn't even lift a finger. Let's contrast that with Genesis 2. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. While Genesis 1 highlights God as the cosmic king, Genesis 2 emphasizes that God is a personal nurturing artist. Here, instead of speaking reality into place, God is imagined as digging his hands into the dirt, gardening, planting, tending. All that it takes to plant a garden, this is not easy work. We see this contrast show up in God's grand story over and over again. The cosmic and grandiose and the personal and relational. Some theologians call it God's transcendence. The big and sovereign and eminence, the presence and closeness. This shows up when God shares his name to Moses in Exodus 3. I am who I am. That's cosmic and transcendent. And I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's personal and relational. It shows up in the Bible's poetry as God is described both as the one for whom the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain, and also as the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. In this grand epic, these two aspects of God show up most clearly in Jesus, all God and all human. The Galilean handiworker, carpenter, who is also described as before all things and in him all things hold together. While the cosmic, all-powerful God can help us overcome fear and worry, as we covered in the last session, this personal characteristic of God is deeply important as well. Why? Well, without God's personal nurturing nature, we can often relegate God to an idea, some objective reality that is above all and apart from all. This is the clockmaker God who created the world, then steps away and lets it tick away. This false image of our God will leave you feeling alone and lost in the challenges of your life. It can make God an upset parent or judge just waiting for you to fail, then punishing you when you do. Or can make God into a busied or uncaring parent whose attention you get by doing lots of good things. No, this is not our story. Instead, while God is all-powerful, God is also soft-hearted, nurturing, and intimate. He's in this with us. So what does this mean for me? When I'm lost, feeling alone, feeling guilty or abandoned, it's important to remember that God is always near. This is the God that ties his name to the people he's in relationship with. He does not grow distant from you when you do this or don't do this. This is the God that is not afraid to get his hands dirty to love you. Which leads to the second point. God journeys alongside of you. Let's look at Genesis 2, 18 through 19. One of the odd parts of the story to me is when God brings the animals before Adam. The Bible says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Now let's think about this for a minute. God is clearly setting something up. He decides that it's not good for a man to be alone, but instead of immediately creating Eve, he first forms out of the ground every wild animal. That's interesting. Why? Why would God do it like this? Did he want Adam to understand something or is he just mixing things up? There is an important truth here that teaches us what God is like and how he relates to us. By bringing the animals before Adam to be named, God was slowly showing him what he was built to do. He was teaching him, 
You see, God doesn't teach Adam here by zapping him with knowledge or just speaking grand truths from the heavens and expecting Adam to learn. No, God is patient and humble with Adam, teaching alongside of him. Think of a parent teaching their child how to ride a bike. It's a lot of work. You have to run beside them as they're wobbling down the street, be there when a knee gets scraped or a head gets bumped. It'd be way easier just to create a manual and have the kid read it, but that's not who God is. And guess what? God hasn't changed. This is monumental good news because the truth is that God is also journeying alongside of you and me. He's allowing us to learn from experience and is there beside us without judgment, faithfully helping us learn. Now, we're not in Eden working and watching over the garden, but we are working and watching over our families. We are working and watching over our job. We are working and watching over our communities. I know we all want to do better in those places. The good news for us is that as you grow, God isn't far away, sighing at your failure, leaving you to figure it out by yourself. No, he's right next to you, giving you learning opportunities, if only we're open to hear from him. So what do I do with this? Don't beat myself up when I need to grow. Instead, I need to ask God what he wants me to learn. With such important truths revealed about God in Genesis 2, how can this chapter shape our view of the world and how this world works? Let's look at verse 5. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. It's as if the writer is hinting at something. There was no one to work the ground. If only someone would come to work the ground. Then it continues on in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. We'll get to what this says about us as humans later, but it's important to note, the world needs a gardener. It's amazing that God made this world in such a way that it needs a gardener. God could have easily built this world to be self-sufficient. Instead, the world was designed to somehow need human tending and nurturing. Remember, this is before anything goes wrong in the next chapter. Sorry for the spoiler. But even while everything is perfect, God still puts the man in the garden to work the ground, farm it, and to take care of it. So what does this mean for us? How should this change how we view the world around us? Well, first we need to remember that God has entrusted this world to our care. We are built to take care of the world God gave us. That means that nature, the environment, the animals around us, the energy stored up in natural resources beneath our feet, the quality of our air, the food our land produces, all of this is somehow connected to and somehow dependent on our human decisions. This story tells us that God intends for us to care for this world. Now, how do we do this? Yes, help pick up trash at beaches and try not to pour Drano in rivers. But to a larger extent, this idea of caring for God's world should help shape our view of work in general. Work is actually God's idea, not a gotta survive paycheck to paycheck type of work, but wonderful, fulfilling, life-giving type of work. Think about it. This chapter is before evil enters the world. All of chapter two is meant to be the picture of how things are supposed to be in God's grand plan. If you want to know what heaven looks like and how things will look when Jesus returns and make all things right, Genesis 1 and 2 are a great picture of that. Work is not just a means for survival in a tough world. That comes the next session. Instead, work is something we do to be gardeners of all that God gives us, to tend to, to nurture, to plant, to prune. When we're caring for the world, for culture, for science, for history, we're actually carrying out acts of worship to God. What would happen if you started to view your job not as just a means of survival, but as somehow caring for this world? How would that change you? How would that change how your Monday felt? For me, this story should challenge me to rethink the stories I'm telling myself about work. Work can, believe it or not, be good. Now let's continue on to the next verse. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. This shows us something important about the world God made for us, that in this world, there is freedom to choose. This single sentence tells us so much about how the world works. We often jump straight to God's command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But there's something really interesting before that. He says, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Don't jump to the butt just yet. You are free. We are free. God has created a world with ample diversity and options in which we have a will to decide. Now, there seems to be a tendency in our culture that pushes against this. It's easy to view this world like we're all just logs floating down a river, helpless of where we end up. Whether it's how we talk about our upbringing, my parents made me this way. How our human nature shapes our character, I guess I was just born like this. Or what those people forced me to do. Yeah, because you did. This is something we need to be reminded of. No one can make you anything. Right here at the start of the story, God makes it clear that we have a choice. Though there are guidelines, don't eat of this tree, there are all sorts of things that are good. And God says, you are free to eat of any of these trees. That's great news. God has created a world of almost endless options, many of which are not inherently moral. What color to paint the house? What to eat tonight for dinner? What new hobby should I pick up? Even sometimes, what job to have? What can I do about this? Next time I'm faced with making a decision, take a moment to thank God for all the freedom he's given me. Often God cares more about the heart behind the decision than the decision itself. Want to be a firefighter or a teacher? Either way, just consult God and your reasoning behind them. Want to buy a house in this city or that? Either way, just think about why and if that would be God honoring. You see, God gives us the freedom to eat of any tree and celebrates when we choose any of the good ones. Now, what might be my favorite part of this chapter is the bit about the four rivers. At first glance, it seems to be awkwardly placed in the story. But looking deeper, I think God wants us to understand a core truth about life with him. Let's jump in at verse 10. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. This passage is telling us that God created the world to carry his goodness outward. Here we see a river that flows out from the Garden of Eden and splits into four rivers fanning out in different directions. Now let's slow down for a bit. What do we know about water? In the Bible, water often represents life. All of creation needs water to exist. And more than that, it needs water to flourish. Remember when Jesus called himself the living water? Water, the source of life, flows out from the garden, carrying God's goodness out into the world. What started in the garden was not meant to stay in the garden. It was meant to flow out from the garden. God's plan was that what was true in Eden would be true throughout the world. Like the rivers, we are supposed to start from a place of loving relationship with God, then flow out into the world around us. We carry God's goodness with us, and the work God is doing in us is meant to flow outward from us. We see this a few places in the Bible, but it's clearest in the book of Acts. Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Here we see Jesus essentially saying, Don't keep this to yourselves. I want you to take what started here in Jerusalem and carry it outward as far as you can go. 
Like the river flowing out of Eden, we too receive the living water and carry it out into the world around us. What does that mean for me? I need to reflect on what God is doing in me because God wants to offer that through me. I can only bring healing to the world where God has brought healing to me. Now let's finish this session by looking at what chapter two tells us about who we are, about what it means to be human. Let's jump back to verse seven. Then the Lord God formed a man, Ha'adam, from the dust of the ground, Ha'adamah, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Gosh, there's so very much in these few words. And this is where slowing down and checking out those footnotes online or in your study Bible can really bring some serious value. See, in the original language, Hebrew, the writer is doing a little wordplay. The word for a man is ha-adam, right? That's where you get the name Adam. And the word for dust is ha-adama. God brought Adam out of the Adama. In our language, it would be like we were saying that God formed Dusty out of the dust. And this verse points out an absolutely beautiful truth about who we are as humans, that we are dust and divine breath. See, previously in this chapter, we have the important reminder that there was no one to work the ground. Remember, the world needs a gardener. But the first one to work the ground is God himself as he digs his hands into the soil and forms a dust creature, kind of like a mud snowman. Now, after God forms this mud snowman, something really incredible happens. The Bible says that God breathes his breath of life into the nostrils of this man. Now, this is actually a really intimate picture of God's close relationship to humanity. See, in this moment, God's very breath is poured into this muddy creature and it becomes a living being. And that's who we are. This is who the Bible says we are. Right? From dust you have come and to dust you will return. And you carry God's very breath in you. Now, these two aspects of humanity represent kind of two different ways of how we view ourselves. Remember, the stories we tell shape who we are. Just think about it. How do you view yourself? And you may land in one of these two camps. You may just view yourself as dust. Maybe you feel pretty worthless. You, you look in the mirror and you, you don't see much. Maybe there's not much value in your life and your efforts seem to be focused on just, you know, getting by. Like, they don't add much value to the world. You forget that the breath of God is in you. And think about those that first read this story of Genesis. I think they likely felt the same, right? The ancient Hebrews had just escaped slavery in Egypt. It would have been very easy for these former slaves to just view themselves as dirt. They were dirt, they worked the dirt, they made bricks from the dirt, they died and returned to the dirt. Pretty bleak, right? Imagine how life-giving it would have been for these Hebrews wandering the desert to internalize these words, that their tired lungs carried the very breath of the God of the universe. Maybe you need to accept this truth with just as much refreshment. Or maybe you're in the other camp. You kind of skip the dust 
and you just kind of see the divine breath in yourself, right? This is more like the Egyptians. Maybe you take yourself a little too seriously. Your, your life kind of revolves around you and your desires and your agendas. Others may see you a bit as a, as a steamroller, right? Maybe a hint too confident. And not that you'd ever say it this way, but your actions and your decisions may show that your life is kind of about you. And this is actually really common in our culture today, right? Which tells you that if only you can find your true self or satisfy all your own needs, then you'll be truly happy. This perspective forgets that we can only truly experience life as we connect ourselves to the one who gives us life. Right? We're just a mud snowman without his divine breath. Now, the interesting thing is, for those of us who view ourselves only as dust, we often only see divine breath in everyone else. Right? It's easy to put people on pedestals and to think their opinions are better than ours and to seek other people's approval maybe over God's. If you're in this camp, when you're in that meeting or that conversation and afraid to speak up, maybe you just need to remember that everyone else in that room is also just made of dust and that you carry God's very breath in you. On the other side, for those of us who see a little too much divine breath in ourselves, we often only see others as dust, right? They're just kind of chess pieces to move around to best serve us. We forget that these people around us are not just objects, right? They carry stories and emotions and the very breath of God in them as well. If you're in this camp, next time you're on the freeway in traffic or in a crowd or on a call, look around at the people around you and Remember that each of those people carry God's very sacred breath in them as well. Now, the solution to this dual reality of who we are as people is to hold both of them in tension. For me, I need to see the dust and divine breath in myself and those around me. Now, let's close up chapter two with one final truth about who we are as humans. The Bible says, so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky and the wild animals, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib taken out of the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This leads us to our final point, that we are unique and equally valuable. That is who the Bible says we are as humans. We are uniquely different and equally valuable. See, this passage is the first picture of human community. And more precisely, this passage is focusing on the marriage relationship between male and female. But whether you're married or not, it is still a small glimpse of what God intends for relationships in general. So what can we learn from this? To be fair, strange passage about ribs being made into people. 
Well, first it's important to remember that God built us for community. Verse 18 gets at God's intent, right? It's not good for the man to be alone. God over and over says it is good, it is good, it is good. But here in perfection, he stops and says, it is not good. Right, what's the solution? I will make a helper suitable for him. We are meant to be in community. Now, to focus in on this marriage relationship, though, let's focus on this word helper. I will make a helper for him. Now, this word can be kind of a misleading word in this passage. Right, see, when we use the word helper today, that can often imply something like a, a sidekick or an assistant in any relationship, but especially in marriage, this is not a helpful way to view another person. Right, if I view everyone around me as my sidekick or my assistant, things are not going to go so well. See, that's not God's intent in this. See, when God made the helper named Eve, this was not a sidekick type of helper. No, we're talking divine help here. This word helper is used 22 times in the Old Testament. It's used in this passage twice, and the other 20 times, it's used to describe military help that comes to the rescue of Israel and brings deliverance. This is not subservience. This is, if I didn't have this help, I would lose. Just to prove the point, let's listen to, to this from Deuteronomy 33:29. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. He is your shield and your helper and your glorious sword. Right? Or Psalm 115:9. All you Israelites, trust in the Lord. He is your help and your shield. This isn't some second-class support. This is divine assistance. So when you look at this passage, what you see is that God is bringing divine help to Adam through another person, someone different. Notice how important it is that Adam needs help. You do too. God has placed your spouse or your community into your life to be divine assistance. God made a partner for Adam to help him rule and reign for God in this world. Eve is different from Adam, but equally valuable. No one is a sidekick here, right? And the beauty of this partnership, of us being one another's helpers, is that we get to bring our specific uniquenesses to each other for the sake of the larger mission. So how does this play out for me? Well, whether married or not, Maybe it starts with that word partner. I need to imagine the person or the people that God has brought into my life as partners in God's work. Now remember, God has chosen to empower you to reflect his character into the world. You get to be a part of his grand work of tending to and caring for this world. What if you began to look at your spouse as a partner in this groundwork? What if you began to look at your fellow believers as partners in this grand work? What if you looked at the people in your small group right now and thought of them as partners in this grand work? Imagine if we viewed each other and all of our uniquenesses as partners in the mission God has for us in this world. So let's let this truth about who we are 
this true story about who we are, shape our views of ourselves and those around us. And my prayer is that your eyes will be opened to the beautiful value in each person around you, yourself included. Now, thanks for joining us for this deep dive into Genesis chapter two. Spend some time discussing what you've heard and what is catching your ear and your heart. We're praying that this next week looks radically different, but in small and noticeable ways, as your views of God and this world and, and ourselves are, are shaped by this incredible story. See you next week. If you enjoyed this episode, consider giving us a rating or a review on iTunes. If you do, you'll help other people find us in the future. You can also listen to these episodes on YouTube. Just subscribe to the Saddleback Church YouTube channel for these conversations, plus lots of other video content. And if you are already listening to us on YouTube, subscribe to the Doable Discipleship Podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app so you can listen in the car or wherever else you go. Don't forget to visit saddleback.com slash doable to check out all of our previous episodes and go to saddleback.com slash grow to find spiritual growth resources and view a calendar of upcoming events. Lastly, you can always get in touch with us by emailing maturity at saddleback.com. Send us your thoughts, send us your questions, your Bible questions, your life questions, whatever. Who knows? Your question might just inspire an upcoming episode. Thanks again for tuning in to Doable Discipleship. I'm Jason Whelan, and I hope you'll join us again next week. 